this time the children up through the kindergarten age can go to their classes in the back. There's people to help you if you'd like to find that class. It is an exciting day when we see and observe, witness together the confession of Christ by a soul today. Um, indeed, that's what it is. That's what a baptism is, a Christian baptism. Jesus had said that those who deny me before men, him will I deny before my Father in heaven, but those who confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father in heaven. And I'm excited today that uh, one who has grown up in our church, um, who has come to Christ, is now today confessing before men that Christ is Lord and God. Because of this special occasion, uh, we're stepping out, as Pastor Caleb mentioned, from the passage in Genesis where we've been working through systematically, and we're going to go over to one of my favorite New Testament books, the book of Romans. So would you join me in looking in Romans chapter 6 today? We've already read this text, so I won't read it again, but I want to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into God's holy word. Our Holy Father, we come into your, among your people today where your presence dwells with your spirit to testify of Christ, the gospel, the display of faith in Christ alone. We come today to hear from you, not to hear from a mere man. We come today to read your word, to study it, to know it, so that we might know you, love you, and serve you. So I ask that today you would take your spirit, and your spirit would encourage, equip, empower, and illuminate the text of Scripture today, and that we would be understanding as your people what it means to be more like Christ today. Please use these words and used me as a tool of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the gospel? Good news. The gospel is the good news that the eternally holy, good, divine creator, while taking nothing from his perfect divinity, his perfect divine nature, added an equally perfect human nature, being born fully God and fully man, and his name was Jesus. This Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, promised in the Scriptures, now physically present in time to save God's people from their sins. And because of divine love, this Jesus lived and, lived and proved a sinless life of obedience to the divine will. And he died an obedient death according to the divine will. His death by crucifixion, which he willingly embraced, consisted of great physical and spiritual suffering. But this divinely ordained suffering was in the place of elect sinners, whereby their sins were placed on his holy account and his righteousness was then placed on their guilty, sinful account. Thus, Jesus Christ's obedient life and obedient death 
provided an atonement, a covering for sinners. And this atonement accomplished everything needed for the worst of sinners, if there is such a thing, to be fully and forever reconciled in joy to God. After this Jesus died, He was buried as proof of death. But three days later, this Christ raised from the dead, never to die again. And He was seen by many as proof of life. He ascended back into eternal glory to the heavens where even now He is present in a triune sense and He is advocating on behalf of people like us, sinful people. God graciously calls every sinner to receive this good news by turning and trusting only in the person and work of this Jesus Christ. Those upon whom the divine spirit miraculously and mysteriously moves, who believe this gospel, calling upon him in true faith, are immediately justified. That is, they are immediately declared perfect and right before God himself. They are adopted into His eternal family, granted full pardon, forgiveness from sins. And this Spirit indwells them, increasingly making these people, once sinners, now saints, holy and good and blameless before Him. So that when the believer dies physically, his Spirit immediately lives with God, forever awaiting the final installment of the purchased possession, the resurrection of the body to dwell with God and His people forever and ever in love and joy and union. This is the gospel. And it is an amazing grace. No matter how great your sin is, God's grace revealed in this gospel is greater. Since I am a great sinner, this is good news. As Paul the Apostle in Romans 5 proclaimed, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. It is fundamentally and without contradiction true that the greater our sinfulness, the more abundantly justifying, sanctifying, glorifying the grace of God is. No one can sin more than the grace of God can forgive. But people are predictable. No sooner has the debts been paid, the credit cards been cut up and run through the shredder, that some will run out to get some more cards. No sooner has the debt been paid than some will said, Great, now I can rack up some more. And this is the precisely the predictability of people that the Apostle Paul turns to in Romans chapter 6. Because after saying the immediate and foundational truth without controversy that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, the Apostle Paul in his wisdom, because he was a people too, he says, what should we say then to these things? Should we continue in sin then that grace may abound? Now here is a stark and important description. 
if the preaching of the gospel does not make people think, you mean I can keep on sinning because God's grace is that grace? That, that God's grace is that great, then you haven't preached it right. It should cause people to say, that's amazing. You mean I can sin and grace covers it? If the answer to that is not yes, that's what grace is, then you haven't understood grace correctly. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher, says that any preaching of the gospel that doesn't immediately sound antinomian is not true preaching of the gospel. If it doesn't sound like too good to be true, then it probably hasn't been preached right. And yet the question there then arises, so then, is that appropriate? If the preaching of the gospel of grace is so amazing that it would cause people to say, there's no sin that can outdo this? Is it appropriate then to say, so does this then mean sin is good and ought to be pursued and there is greater license for it? That is the question that Paul the Apostle raises and proposes for the Christian to consider in Romans chapter 6. You see, this is not a problem with grace or the gospel, but a problem with the predictable, selfish hearts of men. But is it true that God's grace entices or urges greater sinfulness? Is it acceptable that one could make the grace of God an occasion to sin? Or as the Puritan Matthew Henry noted, some should suck poison out of the sweet flower and turn that grace into wantonness and licentiousness. Is it true that one could suck poison out of the flower of grace? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a very direct and clear and short answer to this, and we could end the sermon, I suppose, after this, but then we'd be done too soon today. And the answer he gives is, no, certainly not, may it never be, God forbid. No, this is a dreadful mischaracterization of grace and sin and a woefully mistaken understanding of the power of the gospel, not only to remove the penalty of sin, hell, not only to remove the presence of sin, heaven, but to remove or to add the presence of, move us from the presence of sin and give us heaven, but to remove the very power of sin today. The grace of God does not just remove us from the penalty of sin, it destroys the power of sin. If you want to just sum up what we're going to look at in Romans 6 today, it's simply this. Christian, good news, you don't have to sin. Grace has removed you from the power of sin. That's what Paul's argument is. Now, it seems that Paul is so put off by the suggestion that grace enables or encourages greater sinfulness that he, as Charles Hodge said, deals with it with exclamations of absurdity. He says in chapter 6, certainly not. Here's the absurd rhetorical response. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? He would just as well speak of a living dead man as the concept that one should or ought or could in any right sense live in sin having been delivered from it. And then he gets even more politically incorrect in the very next phrase. And it's a little bit in our English translations, it softens the blow a bit. In the Greek, he basically says, are you that ignorant? 
Are you ignorant? What is wrong? I know it's out of the order of history, but channeling the inner R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? That's what he's saying there. What's wrong? Are you ignorant? Do you not understand that the thing that caused Christ to die could never be that which Christ's death promotes? That sin is not promoted by grace? No, on the contrary. Sin is defeated by grace. Well, at least the power of it. But let's see his argument because he does make some arguments here. And what he's speaking of the ignorance of the people he's writing to or who those who might say this. Yes, sinning grace encourages sinfulness. He says the ignorance here is not just an ignorance of grace or of sin, but predominantly says your ignorance of your baptism. Do you not understand what baptism was all about? Do you not understand? Are you ignorant of what it meant when you were baptized? Because when you were baptized, you said the exact opposite, whether you knew it or not. This is what you were saying. You were declaring your freedom from sin, not the compulsion to sin. And that's the argument he'll make in the rest of this text, is that baptism teaches us the opposite of that question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound. Since we are privileged today to witness a Christian baptism, I thought it appropriate to remind ourselves of the truths that baptism teaches us from Romans chapter 6. Now, when you think of a Christian baptism, uh, and, and the reason I use the Christian ba- word Christian baptism is because Paul does that very thing himself. In chapter 3, he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into or unto Christ Jesus? That's what he's saying, a Christian baptism. And he's de- de- describing it as different or distinct because there were other baptisms. At one point, Paul the Apostle encountered people who were baptized unto John the Baptist or those who were baptized unto repentance. And he says, no, that's not good enough. You need to be baptized unto Christ. And so he's saying the Christian baptism, the one who has believed and professed faith in Christ, that baptism I'm referring to. I'm not referring to the Jewish washings or the Gentile proselyte baptism. I'm speaking of one who has been baptized into or unto Christ Jesus. And he says, do you not know that in this baptism, are you ignorant that this baptism unto Christ taught you two very important, simple but profound truths about grace? about the gospel. And he's going to go through those, and so I'm just going to run through those two truths today, and then we'll be done. The first truth that a Christian baptism, according to Paul the Apostle, teaches the believer is that because of Christ, the believer is dead to sin. Though the believer, as Christians, we celebrate Christ's birth, we hear Christ's teaching, we're amazed at Christ's miracles, and we long for Christ's return. But we are never said to be baptized unto any of those things. Instead, we are said, it is said very clearly in the Scripture that we were baptized unto or into or in association in regard to Christ's death. Leon Morris said it, I think, very well. When baptism is applied to Christian initiation, 
we ought not to think in terms of gentleness and inspiration. It means death. Death to a whole way of life. Christians are people who have died and their baptism emphasizes that death. Death runs through this entire passage. In fact, it's in every verse up until verse 13. Death, 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 death. Paul continues in verse 4 when he says, Therefore, because we were identified or baptized in regard to his death, therefore we were buried in our baptism, we are proclaiming this. We were buried with him through that baptism into death. We were buried with him unto his death. Now, have you ever wondered why whenever Paul speaks of the gospel, the historical gospel, he always brings up that part about the burial? Like We talk about the death of, and resurrection, and we ought to as the primary points of the, of, of, a Christ, of the gospel. But Paul always adds to that. He was dead and buried. In fact, the early creeds added the same thing. We make sure we know he was dead and buried. Why is that? What is the significance of the burial? It's simply this. You don't bury living people. Jesus really did die. The burial was the proof of death. Has he ever thought also the fact that he was buried in a borrowed tomb? You know why he was buried in a borrowed tomb? Because he wouldn't need it a few days later. But Joseph was going to need that tomb someday. Perhaps that's also the reason, as Matthew Henry pointed out, that he folded his grave clothes and put them there. He wasn't going to need to take those up again either. You see, the idea here is that the burial reveals to us the proof of death. And Paul is saying, we were buried. It was proven. It is certain. As certain as you bury a dead man, it is certain that you died with Christ and was buried. The dirt was thrown on top, or we might say in the first century, the stone was rolled in front. Continues in verse 5. For if we have been united together, notice the text, in the likeness of his death. He keeps saying it. In the likeness of his death. You see, Christ died in our place, but baptism teaches this in a vivid way, and we are meant to be made starkly aware of the truth that not only did Christ die in our place, but we died with him in that place. What does the apostle mean when he says we have been united together in the likeness of his death? Well, he doesn't mean that we died in the same way that Jesus died. He physically died on the cross. We're still standing here physically. That's why it says in the likeness of his death, in a similar way to his death. What he's speaking of here is the spiritual death of man. In the death of Christ. And he keeps explaining this a little bit further. In verse 6, he expands a little bit more on this. Okay, so baptism identifies us with Christ's death. That is, we died with him 2,000 years ago. What does that mean? Well, he says this. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man was crucified with him. 
the first question we have to answer is, what is the old man here? What is that referring to? Old person, old nature, there's different translations for that. The most literal is old man. But the word man brings us back to the book of Genesis, to the first man. His name was Adam. So you could say, when Christ died, the believer's old Adam died with him, was crucified was executed, was assassinated. All right? What is the old Adam? It's the old sinful nature within me. That's what I inherited from my parents and they inherited from their parents and so on and so on. That old nature that says you must obey me. You must sin. You must live for yourself expressively, individually, autonomously. Do what you want. That old nature that drives me and drives my greed and my covetousness and my lust. And he is saying in very clear terms, Christian, do not miss this. The Apostle Paul is saying, guess what? He's dead. For the believer, Adam is dead. Never to rise again. The old Adam, the old Nature is dead. Now, somebody might quickly add, how in the world is that possible since I'm alive now and Jesus died 2,000 years ago? How did my old Adam die before I was even, my old Adam was born? Well, this is a bit of a mystery, but it's very similar to the way, same way the scripture speaks of the fact that Jesus, though he died in time in the first century AD, he was also, quote, slain from before the foundation of the world. Or the same way the scripture uses the concept of adoption, election. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, but you are adopted the day you believe. So the idea simply is this, and I know it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's metaphysical and not so much something physical or material we think about, but God is outside of time. And so that which was done in time was already accomplished in the divine will before time began. So he's speaking of this concept, of the God concept, the perspective of God, and he's saying, outside of time, before you even existed, God in his sovereignty, in his power, he killed your old Adam that would be born at one point in time. I know it's a little bit mind-boggling, but the gospel is. The death of our sinful Adamic nature, the depravity of man, of the individual, was nailed to the cross of Christ with him. That's what he's saying. He says, the old man was crucified with him. Notice, Christian, he doesn't say, your old man ought to be crucified every day. He doesn't say, your old man, you need to put it to death. Now, there is a New Testament text that says something like that, but it's actually referring to the deeds of the old man. But notice the certainty, the point in time. Christian, believer, baptized child of God, your old Adam is dead. That's what he says. Now, there is an intentionality in this. He says in the next phrase, so that the body of sin would be done away with, abolished, or here's, a, I think, the best translation, so that the body of sin would be 
rendered powerless. So what's the difference between the old man and the body of sin? Well, the body of sin is not necessarily my body, but it's actually a reference to the sin that uses my body. Right? We sin with our bodies. We sin with our minds. We sin with our hands. We sin with our mouths. We sin with our physical bodies. The body of sin is simply this. It is that flesh, that temptation within, the sinful urges, the passions and delights of my flesh, the lust, the strife, the greed, sin itself that uses my body and urges me to live against God's revealed will. In other words, sin is still actively seeking to use my body. Even though the old man is dead, sin is actively trying to get me to go back to him, to go serve the dead master. Go back to the tyrant and say, yes, he had something good, didn't he? You should, that's your old way of thinking. Your old, the old is still good. Go back to it. And it's that body of sin that's constantly driving me backwards. But he says, no, the old man was crucified so that the body of sin would be rendered powerless. And then the conclusion of it is what he says in verse 6. So that you wouldn't have to consider yourself anymore a slave to sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin. Why don't you have to be a slave to sin? Because the old man is dead. Don't dig him up. That's the idea here. An illustration that some of you have heard probably more than you want to hear because I've used this often, but I'm going to say it again. Imagine a country ruled by a wicked tyrant. The citizens of that country are under his authority and power. In fact, they cannot resist him. But imagine that he is assassinated. The powerful tyrant dies. The citizens are free. But his goons, those trained in his torment and torture, still roam the streets. They're constantly trying to convince the citizens that the tyrant is not really dead. He's on a vacation. Or else they're seeking to convince the citizens they must all still do as you're told. They operate under the authority of a dead tyrant. But if the citizens would open their eyes, they would see that the old tyrant is indeed dead. They could resist their former way of living and the body of sin the kjb operatives would be increasingly rendered powerless the goal is this that the citizens would realize that they no longer need to place themselves under the authority of a dead tyrant they are free from his power they don't have to serve him Beloved Christian, in Christ's death, your old self, your, the old Adam inside of you was assassinated with him so that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the greed, the covetousness, the wrath, the malice, the immorality, the body of sin would be rendered powerless so that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. Why not? The text tells us because he who has died is freed, justified from sin. And so your baptism, dearly beloved, as a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace profoundly teaches you that you are united to Christ in His death. And as such, you are free not only from the penalty of sin, but you are free from the power of sin. The Christian is under no obligation to give one more thought, 
one more action to the works of the old nature because your old Adam is dead. You are free from sin. John Knox, fiery, Purit, or fiery Reformation preacher, said it this way, We have died once for all to sin. Can we breathe its air again? The first principle of baptism is you are dead to your sin. The old nature is gone. The second principle is the polar opposite. Because of Christ, you are alive for God. Notice the same text we already looked at in verse 4 where he said on one hand, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. Notice the rest of the text that just as Christ was raised by, from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. We know that Christ died because he was buried. There were witnesses. The ground witnessed his death. We know that Christ rose again because there were witnesses who saw Him walk. They saw Him live. And that's the idea in the text here. Just as your old man was killed in Christ, so a new man arises in Christ and walks and lives. Again in verse 5, he makes the same co contrast. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. United in death, united in life. That's the idea. <coughs> you see, every time we read about our union with Christ, we are drawn to the death of our old Adam. And every time we are reminded of the union of Christ in death, we are immediately and equally drawn to our union with Christ in His resurrection, in His life, a new Christ, a new spirit, a new Adam within us. Chapter 5 of Romans, the first Adam disobeyed and died. The second Adam obeys and lives. Christ is that second Adam. And so Paul the Apostle in Galatians chapter 5, 22, he says this, same thing, I am crucified. My old Adam is crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Walk in newness of Christ's life. That's what he says. Verse 9 continues this other side of the coin. One side we have our death with Christ. On this side we have our life with Christ. If one was trying to outline this text very carefully, they would say verse 4 and 5, those both speak of both. Death with Christ and then quickly pivots to life with Christ. Death with Christ quickly pivots to life with Christ. And then 6 and 7 emphasize death with Christ. And now um, and 8, 9, and 10 emphasize life with Christ. Nine, knowing this, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he dies to sin once for all, but the life that he lived, he lives to God, and the implication in the language is once for all. Once for all time, never to die again. But life forever. 
just as he was speaking of spiritual death, he is also speaking of spiritual life. It is true and it is found profoundly in many places of the Scripture that there is physical life and resurrection that the resurrection of Christ guarantees for us, but that is not what Paul is speaking of here. He's not speaking of the physical resurrection. He's speaking of the spiritual resurrection that is demonstrated when the baptized person comes gloriously rising out of the water, washed and clean, walking in newness of life, spiritually alive. Remember when Jesus told His disciples that it was actually better for them that He should die and leave them? In what world is it better that the living Son of God should leave us. Yet Jesus says that. And one is left, left wondering, maybe Jesus is a little bit crazy, which is what the disciples thought. How could you say this? But one of the reasons is exactly this principle. Why it's better that Jesus should die and be raised and leave us. In leaving us, He breathes His Spirit upon His elect, and that Spirit not only regenerates the soul, but then forever indwells the saint empowering and enabling us to not only possess, or not only be rid of our old nature, but to actually have the Spirit of Christ living in us. You do understand that, right, believer? That it was the Spirit of God that empowered and enabled Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says it was even by the eternal Spirit that He was able to offer Himself up. And so when He then breathed on His disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. It was His Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who now lives and empowers the believer. You have the power of Christ to glorify God within you by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. I don't think we really fully grasp that. We don't really realize that there is the Spirit of God indwelling His people. And He's empowering us in our freedom from sin. He's empowering us to walk in newness of life. Old Adam is out. The Spirit of Christ is in. Thus we are not only freed from the authority and lordship of sin, but now we are under the gracious lordship of Christ's Spirit all day and all night. We are free from sin now empowered to live for God. That's the principle here. Again, I quote Galatians 2.22. I am crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Back to our freed city. So the tyrant has died. He no longer has authority and power. Dead men don't have that sort of thing. The KJB operatives, so to speak, our passion, sinful desire, still afflict the citizens, trying to convince them that the dead man is not really dead and they still have to go back and serve it. And it's just too hard and it's too difficult. Just give in. And the citizens would be aimless and struggling and fearful. Good that you killed the old tyrant, but now we're left to ourselves? But they're not. What if a new governor arrives? 
What if a benevolent, good, and gracious, and holy, and righteous one comes in? Now the citizens are not left to aimlessly wander, but now they have purpose and meaning. Now they can live as they were always intended to for the honor of the true and better king, the one who freed them from the old man's tyranny and released them from his authority. Christian, on the day of your baptism, according to Paul, you taught these two truths, whether you realized it or not. You taught that just as Jesus was crucified and buried, so your old Adamic nature was crucified and buried. And you proclaimed the sweet truth that you have been forever freed from the power and lordship of sinfulness and rebellion. But you also demonstrated that just as Christ rose from the dead and walked with new life, so Christ has raised you by and in your spirit and now you too under His governorship walk in newness of life. You thus proclaimed in your baptism that you have been forever made like Jesus. Spiritually alive to the glory of God. Dead to sin, alive to God. That's the simple principle being taught in baptism. But when a person is baptized and they teach this truth, something else happens. They get out of the tank river, whatever, and they leave the building. You walk away. What now? What do I do with these truths? I'm glad you asked, because the Apostle Paul has an answer. Notice in the next text, verse 11. Likewise, or okay, here's what you do with it, all right? Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus or through Christ Jesus our Lord, through the gospel. Something we say often at grace, and it bears repeating. The gospel is not imperative, but indicative. The gospel is not do better, but Christ has done best. The gospel is not try, the gospel, the response to the gospel is rest. The gospel doesn't tell us to do in order to live, but the gospel does lead us to do because we live. And that's significant. Paul the Apostle embodies this very well because in most every one of his letters, he begins with gospel indicatives, and then he moves to gospel implication imperatives. That's exactly what happens in Romans 6. Up to this point in verse 11, there has not been one command. There has not been one do. In fact, he has been saying all along, this is what's happened to you. This is what Christ has done. You are free. You are not under the power. Your old man is dead. You notice how all that is stuff done to us? Having established that truth, he now then provides the very natural imperative implication. So what do I do with that truth of the indicatives? The first imperative, the first command in the text is verse 11. When he says, likewise, okay, because of this, because of what Christ has done, now you, Christian, reckon yourselves 
to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. So now, do something. <laughs> because he has done something, done everything, do something. And what is it first to do? And I love this simple truth. He says, count it, regard it, consider it. Now, we might be confused and think that reckon there simply means think about it from time to time. But that's not at all what the word means there. That word reckon is the same word as impute. It's a, it's a, um, it's a number. It means count in the number, put it in the number. Or another great word, I think, is the word calculate it. Calculate it. Make, it a regular, make a regular logical accounting of this truth. It's not mere awareness, but intentional, calculated way of thinking. Think this truth until it is clear and even intuitive. And the implication is that the believer is consistently and soberly walking the Christian life with awareness to the detrimental and destructive effects of sin and calculating the way in which he must not to glorify God and what Christ has done for him. He's, he's calculating. Constant awareness of sin de sin's devastation. It nailed Christ to the tree after all. And a constant awareness of the resurrection of Christ. But he lives. And so there was a carefulness here in this word reckon. This sort of believer, I'm going to be very practical here for a few moments. This sort of believer, the one who is reckoning himself to be dead to sin and alive to God, he does not regard sin as primarily a circumstantial or cultural problem, but as his problem. Because he's calculating it. Notice Paul said, reckon yourselves. There is definitely a tone in there that is not, reckon them. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Calculate this internally. There's a clear tone the believer is not judging others and chiefly concerned with the temptations and sinfulness that might destroy another, but he is very aware of that within his own heart. So for example, maybe he doesn't scroll the internet alone late at night. Because he knows he's often tempted to sexual lust in that way. He's reckoning himself dead to sin of lust, but alive to God. Or perhaps she limits her interactions on social media to very brief moments, only once every few days, because she knows her tendency to gossip and covetousness and jealousy. And so she's calculating herself to be dead to those sins of the mind and alive to God. Or maybe the young man disciplines himself to do a Bible study when he gets home from school on contentment every day because he finds himself battling greed and covetousness when he's at school around his friends. Not because he's trying to earn God's approval, but because he believes the truth that he is dead to sin and alive to God. And so he calculates this is true and wishes the truth of it to be practically expressed as he walks in new life. I find it fascinating that the battle that is being described against sin, which Paul will get explicit in in chapter 7, the hardness of that battle, that the battle begins in the mind before it ever reaches the mouth or hands. Consider, calculate, you're dead to sin, alive to God. So one, meditate seriously on this truth. Calculate it to be true. But the second imperative is found in verse 12 with the main application portion of the text. Therefore, and here we get the very clear imperative, do not let sin reign 
in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. So, and I know this sounds, that's why we have to understand the indicative that came before the imperative. I know this could sound if we just took it out of its context. Okay, so just do it. Or don't do it. And that is what he's saying. Don't let it rain. But it comes on the heels of what Christ has done. So we cannot get this twisted. And yet we cannot become antinomian and think that there is not also a very real practical responsibility that in light of what the gospel teaches us that we ought not let sin reign in our mortal body. Fight it. Battle it. Hate it. Despise it. It crucified Christ. And you are dead to it. And you are alive to God. So, don't let it rule you. That's what he's saying there. How? How do we not let it rule us? The old Puritans had two words that I'm sure have fallen out of favor because we probably have no idea what they mean. I'm going to teach them to you and hopefully we can use them in our lives. But the two words are, well, we do this by mortification and vivification. The what and the what, right? Mortification is simply the first part of what he is saying here. Don't present your members, your mind, your heart, your tongue, your body, your hands, your feet. Don't present, don't offer these up as tools as weapons of sin. So so don't offer them up. Practice the truth habitually. Principally, the believer who is continually preaching the gospel to himself will have great success in not allowing sin to rule over him. Love is a powerful motivator and one who is abiding in the love of God will find it harder to allow sin to reign over him than someone who thinks nothing of God's love for him. Grace is powerful and the ordinary means of grace, the word and prayer and fellowship, these things are the tools by which we battle sin and battle the Christian in the Christian life. But Paul is not telling us how to battle sin here. He's not even telling us why to battle sin. He's giving us really a very simple boots on the ground practical. This is what it looks like when you are. So it's not how we, how we should battle sin, the means of grace, word, prayer, fellowship. Why we should battle sin, the love of God constrains us. Not law, but love. But what it looks like, it looks like this. I'm not offering up my body to be used by unrighteousness because it's convenient and easy. I'm not, well, oh, I just do what feels like in the moment. So that's not what it looks like when you're battling. It looks like this. You're not presenting yourself as instruments of unrighteousness. This is so practical, and yet it, I think, is so important. The Apostle Paul is essentially saying, develop Christ-like habits of grace. So that when you're tempted to covet and steal, your renewed heart and spirit do not let your eyes linger or your hands take what is not yours. When you're tempted to lust, he's saying you're not presenting your mind, your eyes, your hands to linger on the sexual image, the immoral thought or activity. When you don't yield your eyes as instruments of unrighteousness. When you're tempted to slander, to curse, to gossip, you don't allow your tongue to liberty. Bite it. Close your mouth is what he's essentially saying there. Or take your fingers off the keyboard. When you're tempted to deceive, to lie, to cover, to conceal, don't let your intellect, your mouth, your thought processes formulate the lie or deceit. Don't make a plan to sin, is what he is saying here. 
Make a plan not to sin. This is what Paul means when he says, don't yield your members. But it's also what he means in Ephesians 4 when he puts it very simply and says, so put off. Put off lying. Put off slander. Put off covetousness. Put it off. But then once again, vivification. The other side of this is found in verse 13, the second half. But don't present your members as instruments of right unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God. As being alive from the dead, reminding yourself, you're alive, remember? And your members, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So while, you're, while we're habitually encouraging ourselves and teaching ourselves no, we're also habitually encouraging ourselves and teaching ourselves yes on the things that honor and glorify God. We're not only putting off Ephesians 4, we're putting on. That's what he's describing here. So then, we develop Christ-like habits of grace, motivated by love, not law, through ordinary means, word, prayer, fellowship, but so that instead of being ruled by sinful passions, we're being ruled by worship, presenting ourselves to God. So that not only are you not living a life of thievery, but habitually practicing hard work so that you might be a generous giver. Rather than lust, we're viewing treating others with the honor of brothers and sisters. Not as a means to satisfy desires. Rather than slander and curse and backbiting, cause your tongue, or the fingers on the keyboard, the joy of encouragement, truth-speaking, instruction in righteousness. Rather than lies and truth, let every one of you speak truth to his neighbor, saying what is good to them for their edification. Rather than concealment of wrong, confess, forgive, encourage, speak with kindness rather than malice. Instead of covetousness, hospitality. So again, Ephesians chapter 4 lays this out in very glorious detail. Put off, put on. All of this is summed up in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. That is a promise. Christian, the new nature wins because the old one is dead. He's not even in the battle. He just likes to fool you into thinking he is. And yes, the flesh, the body of sin, lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that there is this battle and the things that I want to do, I don't do and the things that I don't want to do, I do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Jesus Christ. He died for you and killed your old nature. Jesus Christ, He lives for you and you can walk in the newness of life of Christ. Dead to sin, alive to God. This is what your baptism taught you. To the unbaptized Christian, consider then this power and significance and importance of this. To the unbeliever, Consider Christ, who died for you and rose for you. And to the baptized believer, I leave you with Paul in Galatians. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. And be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Serve Christ, not the flesh.